Thanks for joining us. Coming up on NTD Business. Is the U.S. labor market starting to cool? 236,000 jobs added in March, lower than February numbers. An economic analyst tells us moderation is the theme today. The IRS releases details on how it plans to use $80 billion in new funding, pledges more audits of the wealthy. Investors versus JP Morgan, some shareholders accusing the bank of political bias. The SEC greenlights a vote to audit the bank's actions. Samsung reporting its worst profit in 14 years, now planning to cut output of a key product. Apple soon opening its first retail store in Mumbai as it bets big on India. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Good to have you with us. Don Ma here. The market is closed today because it's Good Friday, but all eyes on the March jobs report. New government data today shows the labor market cooled in March compared to the prior month. The U.S. economy added 236,000 jobs last month, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.5%. Average hourly earnings rose 0.3%. Leisure and hospitality saw the biggest gains in hiring with 72,000 jobs. The labor force grew by about half a million people, and the participation rate rose slightly. So what's the biggest takeaway in the data? We speak with an economic analyst at Bankrate.com. Joining me is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. So 236,000 jobs added in March, uh, pretty much in line with uh, expectations, slightly lower than February. What is your perspective uh, on the numbers we got today? I think moderation is one of the ways that we can think about where the job market is, but it's still regarded to be fairly tight. Let's remember with the unemployment rate actually falling here to 3.5%, that's just one-tenth above the historic low of 3.4% in January. It was the lowest in 54 years. So we're looking at hiring, which is at the slowest since the end of 2020, but hiring's been on a tear, having seen that uh, 500,000 number in in January and uh, some slowing uh, relative to that in in February. But uh, under under normal times, the kind of hiring that we saw in March would be considered robust. It's just it's not keeping pace with the rather torrid uh, pace of hiring that we've seen over the past couple of years. So on that unemployment rate, 3.5, I think it's sort of the opposite of what the Fed is expecting, right? It estimated that unemployment would rise to, I think, 4.5% this year. So what is the Fed thinking looking at this? Barring more instability in the financial system or major bank failures that could essentially uh, ruin the Federal Reserve's plans, they will continue to believe that inflation is too hot and that they need or likely will need to continue to raise interest rates at the early May meeting. And they projected as much at the March meeting where uh, they suggested that the end rate, so to speak, for the federal funds rate would uh, be consistent with one more rate increase of one quarter of 1% or 25 basis points. Of course, going into that meeting, uh, the financial markets instability, uh, the volatility in the markets, the bank failures, led it to be a bit of a judgment call for Federal Reserve officials to even have any interest rate hike at all. 
And what will also be very important is next week's reading, the Consumer Price Index, which uh, as of the last read was rising year over year at 6%, well off the peak. And similar to that, in this reading of the uh, March Employment Report, we saw the gauge of wage growth, average hourly earnings up 4.2%. That's down from the previous month's reading of 4.6, but again, well above the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. So we'll see what happens over the next few weeks as the Fed approaches that early May meeting. But I think right now the expectation can be said that we get another rate hike of modest means. Now, let me ask you this. Milton Friedman famously said that in, in the process to cure inflation, unemployment had to follow. Now, Mark, is that the same case with today's inflation? To some degree, but we look back on the main triggers for inflation in this latest round. And, you know, that was a lot having to do with the pandemic, the sort of mismatch between uh, supply and demand broadly. Uh, the fact that we closed economies down uh, in a sudden uh, rush in the early part of 2020, and then there was a rush to reopen the economies uh, over the course of that year and beyond. And of course, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, yet another thing that has made the supply chain disruptions more severe, uh, although some of those things are resolving themselves, but you know that certainly disrupted the supply of food and energy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's very often just a case of trying to think back about the basic laws of supply and demand. In the case of the labor mar market, we've had much more demand for workers than we've had supply. And there are a lot of other things that are behind that, but uh, the bottom line is that we still don't have sufficient levels of uh, labor supply in the United States to address the demand for that work. I see. Well, the Fed, I think, is projecting 4.6 unemployment rate by 2024, if I remember correctly. But thanks for the discussion today, Mark. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. The IRS unveils a new plan saying who it's going to target in tax audits. It's planning to spend tens of billions of dollars to audit wealthy taxpayers and corporations. IRS Commissioner Danny Warfel says people who get W-2s or Social Security payments or those who have a small business should not be worried about a sudden new wave of audits. The agency got an additional $80 billion of funding from President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. More than half of that will go into law enforcement. The IRS says the money will also be used for new technology and more customer service reps. Meanwhile, some Republicans earlier claimed the agency will use the new money to hire armed tax agents. In releasing the new plan, Werfel said it does not include spending for new agents with guns. Additional money for the IRS has been politically controversial since 2013. During that time, the agency was found to have targeted political, largely conservative groups that applied for tax-exempt status. House Republicans voted to claw back some of that $80 billion of new funding, but that bill likely won't pass in the Democrat-controlled Senate. And a win for J.P. Morgan shareholders who are trying to stamp out discrimination happening at the bank. They wrote a proposal that could force an investigation at J.P. Morgan. The bank tried to fight it, of course, but despite that, the SEC recently ruled the proposal is allowed to go to a vote. These shareholders see evidence of political and religious discrimination. The proposal was filed by shareholder David Bonson. He's the founder of financial advisory firm The Bonson Group, which manages over $4 billion in assets. 
The proposal says that discrimination prevents the ability to participate in the marketplace equally. It says JP Morgan employees may be using labels, for example, like hate speech or intolerance as an excuse to discriminate against religious groups, for example. And JP Morgan does have a history of ending business with conservative groups. In a previous open letter, 60 financial professionals accused the bank of punishing conservative account holders. We talked to one of those professionals, Scott Shepard. He's the director of the Free Enterprise Project. He sees discrimination happening at these big banks. It has famously debanked all sorts of Republican organizations and groups and conservative organizations and groups while failing to debank in a similar ways on the left. Debanking it is telling uh, targeted parties, targeted organizations that their accounts will be closed, that they can't get loans. I mean, we're going to see a lot more of this as these banks ramp up their social credit scores. But if you don't agree with their left-wing piety's, their woke piety's, you can't get a loan. JP Morgan scored 15 out of 100 on the 2022 Viewpoint Diversity Score Index. This index is a ranking of how much companies respect political and religious views. And it seems like low scores are a trend with big banks. Wells Fargo scored 13 out of 100. Goldman Sachs, 10. Citibank, 8. And just a quick note, David Bonson sits on the advisory council of the Viewpoint Diversity Score. So what's the likelihood that Bonson's proposal will get enough votes? Because if it does, it will force an investigation into discrimination at J.P. Morgan. Director of the Free Enterprise Project, Scott Shepard, says, well, it's unlikely. The people who control shareholder votes right now are, first, the duopoly of um, of proxy advisory companies that are explicitly left-wing, foreign-owned, and that treat all proposals from center-right organizations as anti-social proposals and, and push against them. Even if they're the same proposal the left-wing organization submitted. Shareholders will vote on the proposal May 16th. We reached out to J.P. Morgan. Pfizer infringing on COVID vaccine patents? Well, a new lawsuit alleges this. Arbutus Biopharma claims that the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine uses its patented technology. It's a technology to deliver mRNA vaccines. The company called GeneVant Sciences licenses the patented technologies. It has also joined the suit. The lawsuit asserts that the defendants were aware of the patents. Arbutus and GeneVant say they tried to avoid going to court by proposing a licensing agreement to Pfizer and BioNTech. The plaintiffs are asking the court to award damages for the infringement. Moderna is also facing a patent infringement case over its COVID vaccines. Arbutus and Gene Vance say Moderna used the patented technology in its vaccine without compensating Arbutus. Moderna has denied the claims. Apple Wednesday revealed its first retail store in India. Apple has been moving some of its production into the country, and now it's expanding its brick-and-mortar stores there. NTD Shah Marshall has more. So Apple's becoming closer friends with India. Apple had previously planned to open a store in India in 2021, but that was derailed by the coronavirus pandemic. India has become a big market for Apple, which launched an online retail store in the world's second largest smartphone market in 2020. India is also becoming a manufacturing base with some Apple products, including iPhones, assembled in the country by Taiwanese contracted manufacturers Foxconn and Winstron Corporation. 
Apple also plans to assemble iPads and AirPods in India. Apple has been forced to expand production out of China after severe supply chain problems. Companies are fleeing China for friendlier shores, a trend known as friendshoring. Friendshoring or ally shoring is the act of sourcing manufacturing and labor from countries that are political allies. Samsung, Hasbro, and Adidas have already moved their mainland China production to Vietnam and India. Sean Marshall, NTD News. A rare announcement today from Samsung. It plans to cut chip production after a worse-than-expected plunge in profits over the first quarter. Its Q1 operating profit likely dropped 96%. It's said to be Samsung's lowest profit in 14 years. It comes as a deepening downturn in the semiconductor market. Samsung said the plummet in memory demand was due to a weak world economy. It also said customers slowed purchases as they focused on using up stockpiles of chips they built up over the pandemic. As a leader in its industry, Samsung's move could boost chip prices that dove by about 70% over the last nine months. The company did not say how big the cut will be. It's due to release detailed earnings, including divisional breakdowns later this month. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, nearly 80% of Americans say they oppose cutting Social Security benefits, and 60% say they want the rich to pay more. We get insight on how to prevent the program's funding from running out. And the latest legal challenge over President Biden's student loan payment pause. What is it this time? That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. If one nonprofit has its way, student loan borrowers will have to start writing checks soon. The Mackinac Center for Public Policy has filed a lawsuit demanding an immediate end to the student loan repayment moratorium. The COVID era pause has been extended eight times under both Presidents Trump and Biden, leaving it in effect for more than three years. Mackinac is arguing it puts nonprofits at a disadvantage because they use a federal debt relief program to help recruit employees. It's just the latest legal challenge over the student loan repayment pause. Right now, the moratorium is set to expire 60 days after the Supreme Court decides if the Biden administration's larger debt forgiveness policy is legal. The temporary pause is also slated to end in late August if the Supreme Court does not reach a decision two months ahead of then. The justices are expected to rule in late June or early July. Now, most Americans oppose cutting Medicare or Social Security benefits, even though both programs are running out of cash. That's according to a March poll by the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. About 65 million older and disabled people rely on Medicare and Social Security. The poll found that most Americans dislike some possible solutions to shoring up the programs, for example, like raising the eligibility age or increasing Medicare premiums. Though there was one plan a majority did support, which was increasing taxes on households making over $400,000 a year. 58% agreed with that. President Biden proposed it last month as a way for paying for Medicare. The poll also found that many Americans doubt the stability of both programs. 
Joining me now is Brian Kaderna, financial advisor and author. Now, let me get your comments on, on something. Uh, a recent poll saying that most Americans oppose cuts for Medicare or Social Security. And it seems like they want uh, the wealthy or the more wealthy to, to pay for it. And, and we know uh, by some forecasts uh, that it could be running out soon. How do we tackle this situation? Yep. So I think it's just a question of inflows and outflows. You know, these were entitlement programs that came about, you know, generations ago in the 1940s, uh, right after World War II, at least Social Security, then Medicare, Medicaid came in later. And um, it's either you're going to need more money in the system, as we see, which that comes through tax revenues, or you're going to have to cut the outflows, which would be the benefits which is either going to be a reduction of benefits or some longevity indexing uh, for how people are just living longer nowadays. So, you know, nobody wants to see their benefits go down. So I think kind of the, the easy solution is, well, we'll tax the rich, get more money into the system. Um, but I think in reality, that's a bit of a Band-Aid. And at some point, we're probably going to have to delay the ages that you can receive benefits at. In the long term, I really do think it is these entitlements that... Uh, we need to figure out Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid. They're the biggest expenditures for the U.S. government. Uh, they're only going to grow larger as all these baby boomers retire and are living longer than ever. Um, so for millennials and generations coming up, I think you really need to take a look at those and say, you know, how can we kind of manage all these different programs and keep them solvent? And those are going to have to have some kind of tough questions asked with tough answers that I think come back to, um, you know, not necessarily cutting benefits, but delaying benefits, I think, is the solution. Okay, I see. Maybe expand a little bit on, on your solution. Uh, tell, us, tell us more what we, what we can do about it. Sure. So just to give you some kind of background on Social Security, if we look in 1945, when it would just kind of came into its infancy, if you will, there were over 42 taxpaying workers per one beneficiary. The normal retirement age was 65, and people were living on average to about 66 or 67. So you had a lot of folks paying taxes into the system for kind of niche cases for people that needed these retiree benefits. Now we're in 2023, and there's roughly two taxpaying workers per beneficiary. All right, so that has kind of flipped the script. And we've only deferred the normal retirement age to 67. All right, so we went from 65 to 67. Life expectancy back then was 66. Now, all of a sudden, life expectancy is getting into the 80s. And you could just see how much downward pressure there is on the system. So I think, you know, again, comes back to inflows and outflows. And what I'd like to see is that normal retirement age get pushed back a bit. And Brian, I think what, what you just mentioned now relates a lot to your new book. So what are some things consumers and investors should watch out for in today's market? Sure. Yeah. So in my book, I mean, we tackle all the different um, kind of sectors of the economy, entitlements, education and so forth. And I think from an investing standpoint, you know, in the near term, obviously, interest rates are front and center. Uh, hopefully, you know, we're starting to get kind of our, our hands around inflation. It looks like a lot of the numbers are starting to slow down, which is great. And so I think that by the summer, we'll see the Fed, you know, perhaps pausing these rate hikes that we've gotten so accustomed to. And rate hikes aren't, you know, like, uh, you know, a, a pinpoint uh, kind of tool that they're using. It's more like a blunt hammer where we're just smashing the economy. 
And that's what had such an impact on the stock market last year. Um, so now I think that, you know, that's kind of subsided. I think the markets can kind of return to normal. But these entitlement debates and, and some of the taxes Biden is proposing, I think that'll be the next issue. Well, all right then, Brian. Thanks for the conversation today. It was very interesting. Yeah, thank you for having me. Still to come, the crypto industry continues to grow despite fears over bankruptcies and energy consumption. We look at how some Bitcoin miners in Texas are using renewables for power. The White House getting ready for Easter. We take a sneak peek at the decorations. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Cryptocurrency bankruptcies and worries over electric power consumption have failed to dent the industry's growth, according to a top trade group. Bitcoin miners in Texas are increasingly using the state's wind and solar to supply their energy needs. NTD Sandro Thomas has more on digital mining with renewables. Lee Bratcher is the president of industry group Texas Blockchain Council. He says power usage rose 75% last year and was more than triple that of the prior 12 months. There is about 2,100 megawatts worth of Bitcoin mining in Texas, uh, and that's up from around 1,200 last year and uh, less than 600 the year before. So it's, it's growing considerably. Miners continue to be drawn to Texas's wind and solar power. The renewables could supply about 39% of the energy needs for grid operator Electric Reliability Council of Texas. The Texas grid produces more renewable energy than any other state in the United States. So this makes it a very good location for Bitcoin mining because we are so flexible. Its McKamey, Texas site last month consumed 173,000 megawatt hours of power. About 60% was provided by the grid and nearly 40% from the nearby wind farm. So Bitcoin mining is a very energy intensive business, which is why we tend to find places like West Texas to be full of Bitcoin miners, right? Environmentalists have many concerns around the environmental and the energy impact of Bitcoin mining. That's one of the reasons why US Bitcoin Corp, we've really tried our best to co-locate at or near wind, solar, and other renewable energy sources. The industry also faces new federal regulations. Those rules include a proposed 30% tax on electricity usage for digital mining. It's important for regulators to help protect retail investors and help protect the ecosystem in terms of growing. I think what the industry wants most is guidance on what is the right way to build these businesses that are within the boundaries of the rules that are set. Environmental concerns are just one factor in Bitcoin mining. The November collapse of crypto exchange FTX has raised questions as well. The crypto exchange's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, is facing several criminal charges, including fraud and bribery. The fraudulent activity conducted in FTX under Sam Bankman-Fried's watch um, damaged the reputation of our industry. And uh, we are working tirelessly to ensure that that kind of activity uh, has no place here. New York this year imposed a ban on some cryptocurrency mining that runs on fossil fuels. Other states are expected to follow suit. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
With Easter Sunday just a bunny hop away, we take a sneak peek at how the White House is all dressed up in Easter decorations for the occasion. A canopy of colorful butterflies hangs gracefully above the heads of visitors, and winged decorations are dangling from thin wires. And the First Lady's egg collection is sure to impress those enamored with the tradition. This year, the First Lady is proud to show eggs designed by students from all 56 states and territories. Some of the egg themes include family, spaceships, and hot air balloons. And that's it today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at NTD.com. We read every email. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week.